Hello and welcome to The Frontline, the LGBTI activism podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels, which brings together over 600 LGBTI organizations from 54 countries in Europe and Central Asia. I'm your host, Brian Finnegan, and in this episode, we're discussing the emerging story from ILGA Europe's annual review, which documents legal, political and social developments over the past calendar year. And as you can imagine, after the year that was 2020, our current annual review is a pretty stark report. I'm joined today by ILGA Europe's Advocacy Director, Catherine Hugendubel, Executive Director of Transgender Europe, Mason Davis, and Martha Ramos, Executive Director of ILGA Portugal. Welcome all to the front line. Catherine, um, I'll come to you first. Uh, the message from ILGA Europe for the media with this report is that after 2020's unprecedented events, LGBTI people have been pushed to the brink. Can you expand on that a little bit for me? Thank you. I mean, first of all, I, I, I invite everyone to really dig into the annual review, either by country chapters or by thematic themes, because it's it's such a rich resource and it's really giving the personal stories behind the discrimination and hate we're talking in our work on a, on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's, that's really powerful. Um, so when we talk about LGBTI people and the community being pushed to the brink in 2020, um, I would say what we mean is really mainly two things. Firstly, we've seen the COVID-19 pandemic highlighting and amplifying um, the gaps in terms of lived realities of LGBTI people across Europe and Central Asia. So we've seen even increased vulnerability to homelessness, for example, especially amongst young LGBTI people, LGBTI people being left in hostile family or community situations with the rise of domestic violence that our members are reporting. Um, but also LGBTI organizations really having to step up as, as food banks and providing very simple services as LGBTI people were, were left out of rescue packages and left in a very vulnerable situation. Also healthcare, obviously, and specifically transition-related medical care for trans people really suffering in 2020 and leading to even greater discrimination in healthcare for the community. And, and the second main trend that we're seeing that we feel is pushing the communities to the brink is a notable resurgence of authorities and officials that are using LGBTI people as scapegoats. Um, we've seen this year a number of authoritarian regimes empowered to isolate and legislate without due tr- process, also during the pandemic. So we've seen, for example, a country that has been in the headlines a lot, Hungary, banning legal gender recognition, but also towards the end of the year, banning its well-functioning equality body. And both these um, were partly pushed through through COVID measure packages. Well, we've also seen this on more uh, European and international institutional levels. So both from the UN and from the Council of Europe, we had reports of processes being delayed, obviously country visits being cancelled, um, discussions being shortened or actually not helped in, a, in an accessible way also to civil society. And if we put that together with forces actually actively trying to undermine European and international human rights standards, we get to a very dangerous mix that the pandemic has been providing. At the same time, we've really seen how anti-human rights forces have become louder and how they've been moving into institutional spaces as well. We've seen um, human rights being played out against each other. Um, We've seen arguments that 
LGBTI rights and women's rights are not compatible, that for the protection of children, LGBTI rights need to be curtailed. Um, and we've actually seen that also coming from governments. Um, so we've seen hate and the scapegoating I was talking about before, more and more from government officials. We have seen church officials actually increasingly um, putting out hate against the community, um, in some cases blaming the community for COVID-19. And so that rise in, in targeted attacks against LGBTI rights, and, and Mason, we talk about this a bit more, I think trans rights specifically, is leading to a very dangerous situation where legislation is not only stagnating, but where we're really seeing LGBTI rights being attacked, being pushed back, and and maybe to come back to my intro on the personal stories on where we're not looking at people anymore, but people are actually challenging concepts of the human rights framework without really seeing what that does to people, um, which desperate and, and very vulnerable and insecure situation um, this is actually putting people across Europe in. Thanks, Catherine. So, Mason, I'll come to you. There's a significant growth of opposition towards trans rights across Europe and Central Asia. And it's not only beginning to have a negative impact on legal gender recognition, you know, the legality of, of things, but on actual real lived lives. Can you talk to me about both elements? Sure, Brian. I, I appreciate the question, and I also appreciate all the work that Ilga Europe has put into the annual review. It's incredibly helpful to see in one place uh, the different attacks and, in some cases, advances when it comes to LGBT rights in the region. Uh, you know, Transgender Europe is a membership-based organization with 157 groups in 47 different countries in Europe and Central Asia, and a lot of what we see very much confirms uh, what uh, we're uh, highlighting within the annual re review. We all know trans people have been disproportionately impacted by the health and economic crises of COVID-19 um, and are seeing trans people throughout the region incredibly hard hit by that. In addition, though, to that pre-existing crisis that we have all been surviving, if, if we're lucky in the past year, uh, we're seeing these incredible threats to the basic fundamental human rights of trans people and to the safety and well-being of individual trans people throughout the region. We've been seeing a very dangerous rise of coordinated anti-trans rhetoric and policy initiatives that are increasing discrimination and violence against trans people throughout the region. These anti-LGBT and, and in many cases specifically anti-trans campaigns have been taken up by state and non-state actors alike, leading to a massive attack on trans rights. Um, and that is even further complicated by all of the different fault lines that are showing up uh, and made worse by this global pandemic. And, and we see a connection here to a lot of the rollbacks as well to protections for women's rights um, and the threats against democratic norms and protections. So the, the reality is that we've seen a number of countries in Europe and Central Asia actually uh, reduce rights uh, for trans people and to make uh, the ability of trans people to work, to live, to be a part of civil society uh, diminish. It's been incredibly challenging. You know, I'll just give a couple of examples. In Hungary, the parliament last year banned legal gender recognition for trans people, mandating that sex on legal governmental documents must specify somebody's birth sex, and that cannot be modified. Um, and in Kazakhstan, the Ministry of Health 
um, mandated that trans people be sterilized in order to have legal documents that match their lived gender identity. Um, you know, and I, if if you're not in a circumstance where you've ever had to worry about your identity uh, matching your identity documents, it may be hard to understand the intense severity uh, and risks posed by these um, these kind of regressive policies. Um, the the reality is, we need all need identity documents to be able to uh, navigate life. Um, back, you know, when we could actually travel, we needed that to travel. Uh, we are seeing increasingly uh, police uh, asking for identity documents as they uh, police COVID restrictions, and we typically need them for healthcare as well. Yet we have many people uh, and trans people and an increasing number of trans people who are not able to have identity documents that match their lived reality. Um, and it's, it puts us in so much uh, risk of violence and discrimination and other threats. You know, I'm a trans man myself, and I, I, uh, I changed my legal sex from female to male more than 20 years ago. Uh, for those who can't see me, you know, I'm a kind of a, a bearish guy with a big beard. Uh, I walk down the street without uh, raising many eyebrows most days. And yet, if I were living in Hungary today, I would be forced to have documentation categorizing me as female, um, which actually would create a lot more disruption than letting me be who I am and having identity documents that reflect that. And it creates this challenge for trans people where they're subject to so much more scrutiny and violence as they try to work and live and just participate in daily lives. For some trans people in particular, I think about trans women, trans migrants, trans people of color who already are, are facing state violence uh, around the intersectionality of different oppressions, this makes them even more vulnerable. And um, and unfortunately, we're seeing this kind of thing happening throughout the region. Hungary and Kazakhstan are not the only countries where trans people and legal gender recognition and access to health care are under attack. We're seeing it in everywhere from interrupted legal gender recognition reforms in places like Germany and the UK. Uh, we're seeing it as a problem in Kyrgyzstan. And to be honest, just throughout the region. And it's just not it's not just a simple issue of rights. Uh, this anti-trans policy movement and broader anti-gender rhetoric really threatens our safety. As a result, we're seeing actually a rise in hate crimes, including physical attacks against trans people reported in a number of countries. And we're truly seeing the toll on people's mental health, which is dramatic. Um, we've, we've seen already a number of trans people commit suicide <clears throat> between the tensions of the pandemic and the anti-gender movement in a number of countries. Um, and we've seen an, various activists really express how much more difficult it is to do their work and actually to survive, given what's happening there. So it's it's not just a political issue. It really is an issue of survival for many trans people around the region. Martha, I'll, I'll bring you in there and let's talk a little bit about the anti-gender movement in Portugal and what's been happening recently. Can you fill us in? Um, I believe there was a rise around the presidential election recently. Yeah, it's become increasingly more often that we get, um, not only on social media, but um, something that it's, it is unusual for the Portuguese context to have uh, political figures or persons of interest, of public interest, uh, speaking against trans or against anti-gender uh, as a whole in the media and being outspoken about it. So for us, this is something that it's uh, pretty scary. 
being on the ground and having to work with the with the institutions um, and trying to raise the flags uh, because we see where they where they are going. Um, the majority of the people just tells us, well, uh, it's not that bad. We're not Hungary. We're not Poland. But we'll be there uh, in in the nick of time if if we don't act speedily, if we're not attentive, if we're not paying attention to these movements. Um, just to give you a bit of insight, today we learned that uh, the person who got elected for the Constitutional Court in 2010 spoke very publicly against um, LGBTI people, uh, referring as them uh, being not normal, being a minority that shouldn't be paid attention to. Um, I know this was 11 years ago, but this is the same person who, if is in the job and still has these views on LGBTI people, will have to um, assess the constitutionality of the law um, on on uh, freedom of uh, on a, a self-determination and uh, the ability to change the the legal documents, and in particular the the possibility um, to have uh, these questions introduced in the education system. So in schools, this was something that in 2019, uh, 85 MPs from the right-wing parties asked the Constitutional Court to take a look into and to see if it was constitutional for schools to talk about these questions, in particular uh, gender identity and gender expression questions uh, in schools with students. And this will be the person who is elected and will supervise the actual constitutionality of this case and of this law. So it is pretty scary. And this was just today. Um, so it is a growing movement. It is very active and very mobilized across Europe. And I think that's one of the greatest things that we have with, with the membership of Bilge Europe and of TGU is that we do share information. We do uh, work as a network and we get to anticipate and we get to be attentive and to pay attention to all these movements. But it is very difficult to 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 discuss these topics and to gain the, the, the severity, to make people aware of the severity when people don't see it coming. They just, they think it's very targeted and it's only against trans people and they're very vocal about, about it and saying, no, this is only about trans people and we'll, we'll, we'll overcome it with, uh, with, uh, with awareness raising, with training, with the uh, proper rhetoric in, uh, in, in, in the public discourse. But in the end, it's not. This is, is, is anti-gender. It's much larger. And civil society as a whole, not, not the LGBTI movement, but the rest of the civil society is not working in cooperation and is not paying enough attention, at least in my national context. Um, and this, if, if this doesn't change, I would say still this year, we're in very big trouble in Europe. So not only in Portugal, but in Europe. The anti-gender movement itself is is really kind of reduces, well, it does reduce uh, LGBTI people to an idea rather than to actual people. It's kind of like the distancing of our humanity. Um, I maybe talk a little bit, Catherine, um, about, about the rise of the anti-gender movement movement and where that comes from. I think it's really important what, what Marta is reporting from Portugal because it's exactly what's coming through in the report. So clearly we talk a lot about a few 
countries where we think the backlash is, is biggest, but it's actually spreading. And we've heard from mem- many members um, and we see it in the, in the country chapters that they're actually scared about going down the same road as Poland, as Hungary, even as Turkey um, in some instances. Um, so going back to the anti-gender movement, it's true. We, we together in alliance with um, organizations like IPPF, for example, so organizations working on sexual and reproductive rights and women's rights, we've been for a long time actually um, trying to see how to strategically um, work against the anti-gender, or not against the anti-gender movement, but to really push back um, the, the strong attacks on women's rights, sexual reproductive rights, um, and LGBTI rights. I think the first time national member organizations very strongly engaged in that was actually back in 2013, when at the time of the referendum in Croatia, um, they were seeing a strong force. Um, And I think typically for these movements, it came in the disguise of a local family rights organization. So, and that's, that's one of the main um, things we've actually been doing with, with our membership, but also with policymakers to really kind of dismantle this myth of it's like concerned people that kind of wake up in the morning and feel threatened about their own lives and about their own rights, but actually seeing how this is a targeted movement. Um, You know, where it's coming from, it's going back to the Beijing Women's Rights um, Conference in the 90s and, and where actually the concept of gender was introduced and the first attacks on the concept of gender were actually very strategically started. But I think by now what we can say, it's just it's it's really a powerful network of organizations and I think a lot of money coming from ultra conservative groups from the US but in a really unholy alliance with forces from from Russia from the Vatican um, from the Orthodox Church so it's really a network that's spanning across Europe what we've been seeing very strongly is that if you take a closer look um, everything that seems like a local campaign from a concerned group is actually very closely, and very quickly linked in terms of imagery, in terms of slogans, in terms of arguments used. And you can see how just very in a very short time span, if if, if an opportunity arises, be it the ratification of the Istanbul Convention, um, as was the occasion in, in Bulgaria, or very often at the moment, um, reforms of legal gender recognition legislation, how all of a sudden there's a lot of resources from these apparently um, small local and national initiatives. Um, and, and so it's quite easy to trace that actually there, there are connections um, that go broader. I think what's really striking and what we're seeing yet again um, in 2020 is how how they've also been starting to be very, very closely linked in in governments and also in in um, institutions. So, for example, just in 2020, we've seen a huge appearance of Ordo Iuris on, on European Union political level. So they've been, you know, they've been opening offices, they've been moving into these spaces. And, and I know the argument very often used is, well, they're yet another civil society organization, they might have a different view than you, but actually, you know, they're also a, an organization that should have the same opportunities to do their political advocacy. I think what we need to be so much clearer about and what institutions need to be so much clearer about that actually these are 
anti-human rights organizations. And human rights are not a, a thing up for discussion. They're not an opinion. Um, ILGA Europe doesn't have the opinion that it's advocating for LGBTI rights. And we would never advocate against the human rights of another of another group in society. And I think that's the, the, the big, big contrast. We've seen a president being made when the Alliance Defending Freedom actually asked for observer status in the Council of Europe and was rejected on the base that it's actually an organization working against the fundamental values of the Council of Europe. And, and we really need to see more of that coming. We need a clear acknowledgement um, that also within the European Union, these organizations work against fundamental rights set out in the charter and values set out in the treaties, for example. So I think we've been, we are especially, I think, policymakers, institutions have been too careful um, because these organizations also very often are very good at playing the game of being the victim, actually. I mean, it's 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 what we see coming through in all of the cancel culture as well, actually, of saying, you know, you're not allowed to say certain things anymore. We are being uh, demonized for the organizations we are. But actually what we're measuring organizations against is an international human rights framework that they are trying to undermine. And, and we, together with institutions, governments and allies, need to uphold Mason, a big part of the reporting of anti-trans rights or anti-trans movements um, kind of focuses on the protection of minors or the idea that uh, uh, allowing or advancing protection or self-determination for trans people will affect women's, negatively affect women's rights. Can you talk to those two pieces of misinformation? Yeah, we're in a challenging period, I think, because uh, we've we've seen you know, until recently, some good advances when it comes to uh, understanding and protecting trans people of all ages um, through our laws and and some of the services available. Um, and yet we're very vulnerable because the majority of people still don't know who a trans person is or may not have a trans person in their lives. So it means that when these anti-human rights groups put out messages about trans people. They're oftentimes, they're untrue to begin with, um, but uh, many people don't realize that they are myths, that they are untruths. Um, and it means that we uh, do see these challenges in many countries at this point. Um, what people may not realize, for example, is for many trans youth, um, we have found that letting them identify for themselves who they are um, and recognizing that uh, lets kids be healthier and more focused on learning and growing up. Um, it reduces self-harm, suicidality, um, and lets kids be themselves, um, especially until they're old enough to make uh, perhaps longer term decisions about their lives. Uh, supporting young people in being uh, true to themselves does not mean that kids um, are all of a sudden having, for example, surgeries or health care that would be inappropriate to their age and their ability to make decisions. For many kids, for example, transition, if they identify as trans, is oftentimes as simple as a haircut, uh, what clothes they're wearing, and perhaps the name and the pronoun they use at school. But if you were to believe some of the groups like ADF, that Catherine mentioned, you would think somehow that uh, 
parents and doctors were forcing very young kids to make decisions that were lasting and permanent and damaging. The truth is actually quite the opposite. Parents and healthcare professionals are trying to make sure that kids have what they need to be healthy and focused on being kids and surviving uh, their, you know, their own childhood, which I don't know if you all remember your childhoods, but sure isn't easy as a young queer person, um, including as a trans person. So the, we, we unfortunately, because we're vulnerable around these issues and, and youth oftentimes can't speak up for themselves in every political venue, uh, we are seeing, for example, uh, increased challenges for trans youth who may need access to something like uh, pubertal uh, hormones to be able to just give them a little bit more time before going through puberty. So as they get old and older, they can then make some longer term decisions about their own uh, life trajectory and healthcare decisions. Um, we are seeing reduced ability for trans people to get legal gender recognition uh, if they're under the age of 21, for example, in some countries. So these kinds of things have made, have made it more difficult for trans youth and their families. What people may not realize is that directly connects then to increased uh, mental health challenges, violence, uh, suicidality within transgender youth and their families, and it's just bad in general for keeping our kids safe. So we're very concerned about this attack against our children, you know, and, and so much of this is cynical. This is happening because some very conservative people have decided that uh, attacks directly on gay and lesbian people aren't working the same way that they did 20 years ago. And so they're going after what they consider to be our most vulnerable groups, which are trans people and specifically trans kids in many cases, um, as a way to roll back not just trans rights, but uh, gender rights and LGBTI rights over time. These are all very linked. And it's, it's really time for us to ask ourselves why we're seeing such a concerted attack against the rights and well-being of trans people at this point, given all of the crises we have around COVID-19 and the economic downturn. Uh, why is it that trans people and, and access to just basic legal gender recognition documents is, is the political issue of our times? There are bigger issues in concerning all of us, um, both just basic survival and navigating this, this pandemic um, together. So it's time to really question who profits from this attack against such a minority group and to start exposing what's really behind this, which is this larger political movement. It is not a local uh, campaign to address real concerns on the ground. There's a, there's a broader political play here. Very good question there. But it, as you said, it does come amid huge and unprecedented uh, challenges for people around the globe and uh, not least for LGBTI people. Marta, you might talk to us a little bit about what Ilga Portugal has experienced in terms of um, socioeconomic uh, disparity and the difficulties that people have experienced during the pandemic in many countries that were not addressed by their governments, so their LGBTI people were left lacking. Following up on what Mason shared, and um, for us it's not surprising, for, but for the majority of people it was actually surprising that the, the growing number of requests for help that we got during 2020 and still in 2021 come from um, LGBTI youth in particular, trans youth. Um, because um, they were in hostile environments uh, at home. 
So they decided to leave in the early beginning of the pandemic or during the pandemic when they couldn't cope with the with violence, um, sometimes physical violence, uh, but very much uh, deprivation of liberty uh, within the, the household. Um, and they decided to leave the house and to, um, well, they, they thought they were better off in a, in a homelessness situation than in their home. And this says very much about what people are experiencing during the pandemic, LGBTI in, in general, but in particular trans uh, people. Um, and especially youth. Um, so one of the things that we've been uh, working uh, quite extensively during last year, and it is a new area for us because we weren't very active on, on the homelessness strategies, but particularly here in Lisbon, uh, the municipality came to us and actually said, we have a problem with the shelters. So there are not safe spaces for LGBTI people. So we need to come up with an alternative solution, a specific solution. And in particular, we had, that's when we realized that the majority of the cases were uh, trans or in questioning um, youth people. And um, so we, we decided to start training the, the staff uh, of these shelters. Um, and when we realized it wasn't enough, uh, just have the basic conditions and basic dignity in these shelters, um, then we started moving people um, with other NGOs and one in particular works with LGBTI youth um, to alternative locations where they could be uh, in a safe space, so only designed for LGBTI people. Um, and this is something, this was an area that is not our comfort zone. We had to learn very quickly. We had to adapt um, and I'm, I'm, I guess this, this is general for other LGBTI organizations in other countries, but the, uh, the pandemic has really put us on, on, a, on a very difficult spot, asking for uh, housing services that we don't have, we are not prepared to have, but maybe the solution from now on is actually coming up with, uh, with housing solutions for LGBTI people, not only uh, people who are the victims of domestic violence, that we already have in Portugal a solution for that, those cases. Um, and to try to move all our services from in-person services to digital services and still not leaving anyone behind, uh, which of course we do, because not everyone has access to digital cell phones, uh, whichever solutions. Uh, I can give you an example that happened this year, because we also uh, work with uh, migrants and refugee uh or asylum seekers. Um, and we got a phone call two weeks ago of a taxi driver that actually drove someone from the airport to our community center. Uh, and once the person got to our community center and tried to phone us and we didn't pick up because the community center is closed, we are in a mandatory lockdown, the person just had a, a breakdown. So, uh, and the person went completely erratic in the street. So the taxi driver was pretty scared of what to do. And then eventually the person just left and didn't pay the taxi ride. Um, and really, I, I'm not sure if the person had just arrived to Portugal or not, but coming from the airport, we have to assume it, it was uh, an asylum seeker possibly. Um, and this was their solution. And the solution wasn't there because we're closed. And this is happening everywhere. Um, that our services are leaving some people behind. And what will be of these persons that have no support? They have nowhere to go. They don't know how to reach us anymore. Um, so we really need to start 
building bridges with other organizations, with other areas of, uh, of expertise. We need to learn from other organizations' experiences and bring the LGBTI perspective to their work um, so that we can have a closer social network and, and better services for everyone in all circumstances. I, I think we're all learning a lot from the pandemic. Um, just to give you a bit of numbers, this uh, in 2020, we had had over 630 requests for help only since September. So I'm saying that possibly uh, I don't have the, the exact figures from last year, but it was over 1,000 cases of requests for help on a regular basis. So gender-based violence and domestic violence, we had a, a very big rise of domestic, case, uh, domestic violence cases, in particular targeting youth, uh, because uh, thankfully our legal framework actually uh, foresees uh, that it's not only um, intimate uh, violence, um, and there are very limited responses to these cases, and the majority of cases are not actually framed uh, legally as domestic violence. So it's us has having to say to the authorities, no, we have to activate all domestic violence uh, resources that exist and that the law uh, foresees, because this is a domestic violence case. Um, and then the, the suddenly the case is, complete, is dealt completely different. Uh, but if it wasn't us, the LGBTI organizations, raising this flag and saying, no, you're doing it wrong, um, I, I don't know. I think we would have much more cases of uh, LGBTI people in a homelessness situation by now. Um, and this is very difficult to, to explain. Um, I think this, when, when it becomes public that we have to create then specific responses because the existing ones are not working, then the anti-gender discourse comes again into public sphere. Um, and no one, um, not the decision makers, the persons who are in charge and should be outspoken about this and should say, no, this is a matter of human rights. Um, this is our obligation because the state has the obligation to protect people from violence. This doesn't happen. And this, I think this is the greatest risk that we are facing. The threat is that no one is speaking publicly against this. No one is setting the tone and saying this is human rights violations that we are talking about. And this is something that it's important on a local, national and international uh, forums. We just can't be the ones raising the flags and being outspoken all the time. We have been doing that for a number of years. We need the persons who have the a mandatory obligation because they were elected to do it. Thanks, Marta, for that. The, the annual review itself is, is a very complex and huge uh, document, well, a, a big read, uh, and covers a huge amount of subjects and uh, with great depth and there's great complexity in there. And, and having listened to, to everything today, Catherine, I'm going to ask you, is there any good news from it? Yes, I think, I mean, where we've not been zooming in is the little legal advances that are still happening. And I think it's really important to highlight them. We've also, I think, another really positive development that we're starting to see is like a slowly growing awareness of the threats Marta has just been talking about and also the obligation to speak out very clearly. I mean, one thing we, we've keep 
um, praising and mentioning is like the EU this summer finally finding the right words when when EC President Ursula von der Leyen in the European Parliament found very strong words on LGBTI not being an ideology, speaking clearly out about what's happening in Poland, but also clearly stating that a parent in one country is a parent in every country. And we need to see much more of that. We need to see much more as Marta was just saying, people in, in the position to do so, people representing European international institutions, but also governments to, to stand um, very strong and, and very clear on, on, on LGBTI rights, but I think also on, on the human rights um, frameworks. I think what's also come through in, in the annual review quite nicely is that um, despite the fact that it's not, I think it's explicitly mentioned yet so much we have seen a much more growing awareness of the of the facts of intersectionality and actually seeing the links that you know the most marginalized in one community are the most marginalized in another community. And if we, we actually want to leave no one behind, we need to look at LGBTI people of color. Um, we need to look at the links between disability and, and, and sexual orientation, gender identity and sex characteristics. Um, and it's, it's quite striking that even though we know that lots of our members are working on the issue and, for example, to Play, took part in the Black Lives Matter. It's not. It's, I think it's not reflected in the in the review now. But I think if you read closely of what the actions are that are set out there, um, it is becoming clear that it is a growing awareness and it's a real opportunity again to work with institutions and um, to to tackle the inequalities holistically and actually develop solutions. Um, as Marta was saying, also in alliances with other organisations that will that will actually take us forward. Thanks for that, Catherine. Uh, there's so much to discuss. There's so much in it. And I, over the coming year with the Frontline podcast, we're going to be talking about things on a thematic uh, level. And in the meantime, and until then, thank you very much to all of you for being part of the podcast today, to Mason, Catherine and Marta. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Frontline LGBTI Activism Podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe for more. And if you get a chance, give us a rating. Tune in next time wherever you listen to your podcasts when we'll be travelling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia.